Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. President Biden is making a great big bet on government. He wants to boost federal spending to its biggest share of the overall economy in decades, and that would amount to a, a dramatic change in budget and tax policies. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago, in fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. Biden's infrastructure announcement this week was the first of a two-part, multi-trillion dollar proposal to boost subsidies, give the government a much larger role in all kinds of commerce, and hike taxes on corporations and the wealthy. Today, infrastructure and how do we pay for it? Maya McGinnis. Let me start by saying that we've engaged in an unprecedented amount of borrowing in the past months, which is exactly what we should have been doing. The overall COVID response has been very successful in fighting the pandemic, alleviating economic hardships, and fostering the recovery. The good news is that we seem to be coming out of the worst part. The bad news is we had a mountain of debt before the crisis, and we have a much larger mountain now. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? He may be old, but plans to go bold. Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal is about a lot more than roads and bridges. He wants to create hundreds of thousands of union jobs in wind and solar, build a nationwide network of charging stations for electric cars, fix dilapidated schools and colleges, and expand broadband internet to many places that don't have it now. He's kicked off a big debate about not just how much we should spend on infrastructure, but also how should our economy be structured? How much should we be taxing different groups? I think this conversation is going to get very intense very quickly. The proposals are really a political sea change. If he gets his way with Congress, and that I think is a giant if, the role of government will expand really dramatically. Biden believes that government should be seen as a force for good and on your side. <laughs> it depends on which side you're on, Richard. No surprise, I'm quite skeptical about this. Vast amounts of money could be wasted in this proposal. Jim, you and I will discuss the ambitious 
infrastructure plan later in this show. But first, we ask an independent expert on taxes and spending how Biden's plans could be paid for. There is already a yawning gap between the money that government spends and what it raises in taxes. Maya McGinnis testified last week before the Senate Budget Committee. She's the president of the Nonprofit Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Here's part of what she said about the COVID relief bills and the federal debt. Let me start by saying that we've engaged in an unprecedented amount of borrowing in the past months, which is exactly what we should have been doing. This has been a terrible crisis, and while the most recent package was larger and less targeted than we thought was warranted, the overall COVID response has been very successful in fighting the pandemic, alleviating economic hardships, and fostering the recovery. The good news is that we seem to be coming out of the worst part. The bad news is we had a mountain of debt before the crisis, and we have a much larger mountain now. Going forward, we are on track to borrow $15 trillion over the next decade, assuming there's no new borrowing. Maya McGinnis says that to even start reducing the enormous gap between what the government is spending and what it takes in, taxes must be raised. However, The main point I'd like to make today is that they alone will not fix the imbalances we face or pay for the expansive agendas that are being discussed. So one of the tricky things about paying the fair share is, of course, that fair is in the eye of the beholder. I personally think that making the tax code and our spending programs more progressive is the right thing to do in light of trends in inequality, mobility, security, and opportunity. Clearly, we need to do something about the very large tax gap and ensure that people pay what they actually owe. Her testimony brings little comfort to either liberals or conservatives. McGinnis is calling for cuts in tax breaks for the wealthy, higher estate tax, a hike in the corporate tax rate of 21 percent, and keeping the current cap on deductions for state and local income taxes. To stabilize the debt at today's level of 100 percent of GDP over the next decade, which is very high, it would take $4 trillion in savings. This could be done by enacting all of President Biden's proposed campaign agenda, tax increases, higher tax rates, limits on tax expenditures, expanding the minimum tax, et cetera. If you want to finance his spending agenda as well, probably 11 trillion in new initiatives, you'd have to go further from what is already a pretty aggressive set of tax increases, for example, by imposing wealth tax, transaction tax, boosting individual and corporate rates as high as 50 and 35 percent, respectively. And this would still leave a $6 trillion hole. The bottom line on federal debt. So the fiscal hole is so deep that basically all credible options will need to be on the table. And the longer we wait, the longer this list will have to grow. Fiscal responsibility is not about big government or small government. It's about being willing to pay for the priorities you want to spend money on. Shifting costs to the future is at odds with the principle of serving as a good steward for the economy, the nation, or the next generation, even when that is money well spent. Maya McGinnis, in her congressional testimony in late March, it's clear from her remarks and from official statistics that government debt continues to grow both under Republicans and Democrats. The current COVID pandemic greatly strengthened the case for government action and stimulus money to be spent. Of course, Richard, the question, as always, is how much? We're discussing this large infrastructure proposal after the Biden administration already put through the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. We go next to our How Do We Fix It interview with Maya McGinnis that was recorded three years ago. She discusses the long-term picture of recent annual government deficits and debt 
And in many ways, things certainly haven't gotten better since we had that conversation. Yeah, when you listen, bear in mind that this interview was recorded soon after the Trump tax cuts were passed, which added to the debt at a time when the economy was really strong. So the numbers, no matter how you slice them, are really bad. Um, We are about to hit trillion-dollar deficits every year forever. Um, And what's really troubling about that is that this is during a period of economic strength. So it's not the result of a recession uh, or some huge emergency. It's self-imposed. The debt will be as large as our entire economy by the end of a decade. Um, Interest payments are the single fastest growing part of the budget. Basically, every indicator that you could look for in terms of the numbers are on flashing red alert. Wait, you said that the debt is going to be as big as the entire economy. Yeah. Okay, I'm having trouble having that even sink in. It it should be hard to sink in. What I really feel is that as bad as it is economically, it now reflects our broken governance system. Uh, The average debt relative to the economy in this country has been below 40%. So it's going to be significantly higher than that. It's already at 77 percent. But that slows economic growth. So when you say that that within a decade, Mm -hmm. our total federal debt, uh, what we owe, will be equal to the economy, you you mean that it will be equal to one year's output of all the goods and services of the U.S. economy, yes? Precisely. Maya McGinnis speaking in 2018. Today, the national debt is larger than total economic output per year. It's risen every year since the 1990s and continues to go up. We have well over a trillion dollars in tax breaks every single year in our tax code. So we could go through our tax code and get rid of a lot of the tax breaks. And I don't mean to make that sound small. These are things people love, people and companies love. But we did just cut taxes massively. We need to figure out a way to offset some of those costs. We could do that immediately. So we need to go back and look at more like things, uh, um, the health care exclusion. So your compensation that is in the form of health care isn't taxed. That has a lot of negative effects, actually. It makes health care costs go up. You're saying that over time that benefit has has grown to the point where we overly rely on businesses to buy our health care, and that's driving up health care costs? Well, what we do is we give you a tax break if your compensation is in the form of health care, but not so if it's in wages. So it encourages more health care consumption. And what it means is that people who get very generous health care plans, who tend to be more well off, don't pay taxes on that, while people who get smaller tax uh, health care plans or none at all don't get that same tax break. What are some other tax breaks yeah, that, and, and- that would really help if we got rid of them? A lot of the things we want to help with, education, housing, healthcare, are the best examples. We then proceed to give tax breaks for them the home mortgage interest deduction, uh, education savings accounts, healthcare exclusion. What it ultimately does is it drives up the cost of those things. We've certainly seen that in some parts of the country with housing, for instance. Well, and I was just going to use that example. If you look at the home mortgage interest deduction, when they talk about making changes to it, which they did uh, in this past tax bill, but there's more you could do, who lobbies the hardest to preserve it? Not homeowners, though they like the, 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 build, the builders. The builders, the lenders. So, okay. 
reducing tax breaks or ending a lot of tax breaks, that's, that's one solution. But we need, we need more, don't we? We do, and it needs to be both on the spending side and the revenue side. When you folks in Washington talk about revenue, you mean taxes, right? Because I've heard that word revenue before, but most of us think, oh, that means we're going to pay more taxes. Oh, yeah. Uh, let, let's be really clear. Taxes. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thanks. And, I mean, it, and even, even a, a tariff about, is a tax in the end. Yeah, even when you talk about raising taxes that directly aren't on people, whether it's a corporate tax or a carbon tax, they get funneled back to us. So I don't want to whitewash it. We are going to have to pay more. But yes, the government's going to need more revenues, and we're going to have to get that by taxes. And I just think that a carbon tax is an interesting one because it helps it helps both in the energy and environment sectors as well as helping to raise those new revenue. There are a lot of different possibilities. Yeah, let's zoom in on the carbon tax for yeah. a second. It's not a new topic for listeners of how do we fix it. And we've heard some interesting proposals. What kind of carbon tax would you recommend? And and why is this something, why are we looking at carbon now? I would look at whatever could pass. The reason that I do think carbon tax is something to think about is a basic bumper sticker economics that my graduate school teacher hammered in all of our heads. And it's it's just hard to argue with. But tax things you want less of, not things you want more of. We have a lot of taxes on this country on income and savings. We actually want more income and more savings. But if you look at taxing things like pollution or excessive consumption when you're consuming too much, though that's not always true in a recession, but consumption, things that are bad, that's why people have talked about taxing sugary drinks or other things like that. It is wiser to find something you want less of. And so CO2 emissions is certainly in that camp. And it makes sense to me that if you can find a policy that could achieve more than one goal at a time, that's a good starting place. Any other taxes that you would put up? Oh, I mean, I'm open to anything. I think that we actually, I was a big fan of corporate tax reform, but we just had a corporate tax cut that is uh, pretty much by all accounts beyond what we needed, bringing the corporate rate down to 21%. You could peel back some of the tax cuts that we just passed. I think that would make a lot of sense. Those are individual and corporate income taxes. Um, I would not probably raise the payroll tax rate uh, if I could help it, because I think it's a pretty regressive tax and it's on wages. But you could lift the cap. That goes to how you'd fix Social Security. That tax is, on, uh, is, is supposed to fund Social Security, right? Social Security and Medicare, that's right. I think most people know this, but ex explain what you mean when you say a tax is regressive. Oh, right. A tax is regressive if a bigger burden of it falls on lower income people. You know, it's funny. You, so you're talking about the, the not wanting the tax system to be too regressive. On the other side of the equation, it seems like there's a lot of people today influenced by the kind of Bernie Sanders movement who think there's an just inexhaustible source of yes. money by taxing the top one or five percent. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, because that is one of the biggest and frankly, most damaging myths out there. But the notion that you can fix everything or double our Social Security program or have pre-K for all, all we have to do is tax millionaires and billionaires and big, bad corporations is really a dangerous argument because there isn't enough money in all those places to fix everything. What are examples, though? We, we've talked about making the tax system less regressive. 
Are there taxes that would be progressive, that, that would be effective? Well, so when you lift, if you lift the income tax rates, you can lift the lower ones, which would be more flat or regressive, or you could lift the upper ones, which would be more progressive. Let's talk now about spending, about places where you would argue there needs to be cuts. First, um, Social Security. Are we running out of funds for Social Security? In the year 2033, give or take, the actuaries of the Social Security program predict that the trust fund will no longer have enough revenues to pay full benefits. Now, that sounds like that's far off, but it's actually not that far off. Somebody who's roughly 50 will be retiring right when the, the trust funds no longer have the money to pay full benefits. If we do nothing before then, which would be utterly stupid to continue to kick the can instead of fixing this in advance, because we know this problem is there, there will be across-the-board benefit cuts of 23% for every single person from the poorest widow who relies on the program to the person with disability. So we have a crisis looming, but no one seems to feel like it's a crisis. How do you sell this? Do you deliver every parent a, uh, a bill when their child is born telling them what this kid is going to owe, <laughs> you know, through her or his life? I mean, what, what can we do to raise the awareness of just how serious this is? Well, I'm just sitting here smiling because that's like one of the best ideas I've heard in a while. I love. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go hang out is in the in the hospitals and hand out that bill because it is. I mean, there are a couple things that make people care about this issue. And again, it's dry. It's wonky. It's hard to connect to your life when you're worried about healthcare costs and retirement costs and saving for your kids' education. Somebody preaching about debt reduction is tough to feel tangible. But people do care about their kids and their grandkids. And people also do know that having an economy where you are dependent on borrowing, particularly from abroad and often from countries that you're not aligned with, is not a way to maintain prosperity. You can't borrow your way to prosperity. I think we need to do a better job of publicizing all the damage that is being done. When somebody gives a tax cut or a spending increase, everybody likes it because they don't have to focus on the side of what we're doing to the national debt or our children. So finding better ways to make that is the first step. Like one of you said, admitting we have a problem. <laughs> Maya McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really fun. Not much there, Richard, to give comfort to supply-side conservatives or big-spending Democrats. Yes, you could call Maya a skunk at the spending party. She's been sounding the alarm for years now about government deficits at a time when few politicians in either party want to listen to her. Coming next, our conversation about the Biden infrastructure plan announced this week. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before our recommendation and conversation, a quick word about a sister show on the Democracy Group Network. Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then join our community at Our Body Politic, a podcast by and for women of color that offers a new view of the news. We're making politics personal with me, host Farai Chidea. Each week I get real with women you need to hear from, like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Maxine Waters, and actor Anna DeVere Smith. Subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with our recommendations. It's movies this week. Richard, you've got two films that you think are real standouts. Yes, uh, both possibly will get uh, Oscar awards. The Father, about an elderly man struggling with Alzheimer's and his middle-aged daughter struggling to help him. And Minari, a tender story of a Korean-American family who moves to an Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. Both films are works of art. They're so well scripted and set, and the acting is remarkable in both. Uh, neither Minari nor The Father are easy to watch, but they are both deeply moving. Coming next, our conversation on the Biden infrastructure plan. So, Jim, you have been writing and reading and researching this for a while, so I'm going to give you center stage. What are, what are some of your thoughts? Well, I've read through the entire White House proposal. Remember, this isn't the bill. This is just kind of the blueprint for what will be, if it all goes into one bill, one of the biggest bills in perhaps the biggest bill in American legislative history. It's a $2 trillion plan over two years. This is just the infrastructure part. There's be another phase that will be announced in a couple of weeks, focusing on what they call human infrastructure. But the total of the two of them could be somewhere between three and four trillion dollars. This bill, the infrastructure plan, has 621 billion dedicated to transportation infrastructure, highways, bridges, ports, 100 billion to bring broadband internet access to areas that don't have it, mostly rural areas. $231 billion for public housing, including new construction and retrofitting older buildings. $300 billion for boosting manufacturing in various ways. The biggest item is $400 billion on care for the elderly and disabled, including home care. So it is a real pretty amazing combination of, of things that in my book are are important and necessary and, and perhaps overdue, but it also throws in pretty much everything but the kitchen sink under this, this, this broad infrastructure label. And how do you see it politically, Jim? It's going to be tricky politically. There's a lot of language in there that's not geared to win over moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans who, who might 
be willing to come on board with a sensible infrastructure bill, but rather to win over the progressive wing. We've already heard from AOC and others. They don't think this bill is anywhere near big enough. I see it a little differently from you. I think that infrastructure spending really should have been done in many cases years ago um, by the federal, state, and local governments. Uh, The amounts of money we spend have really fallen behind traditional levels. I also think it's interesting that the chief economist from the Wall Street research firm uh, S&P Global says that a $2.1 trillion boost in public infrastructure spending would bring us back to the levels of spending relative to the economy of the mid-20th century and could create 2.3 million jobs over the next four years. So I applaud President Biden for trying. And there was really a missed opportunity in the Trump administration when uh, Trump came in and said that he wanted more infrastructure spending and the efforts by that administration really fell flat if they were efforts at all. It would be great if we were spending $2.1 trillion on infrastructure if those projects are really necessary. But this bill doesn't spend that. Only, only, you know, somewhere around 700 billion and maybe a trillion are devoted to things that would classically be considered the kind of infrastructure that we spent money on in the mid 20th century. The other thing is, if you're spending money on infrastructure, don't you want to get the best bang for your buck? The plan mandates that all these projects be um, be done on what's known as a prevailing wage rules. That's a rule that unions love that says, even if you hire non-union workers, you basically have to pay them more or less a union wage. That drives up the cost of any kind of construction by 15 to 20%. At a time when we want to achieve all these goals, especially decarbonizing our electric grid, they talk a lot about that. There's surprisingly little detail in the energy part of this in the proposal. But let's say you really believe we need to bring down our carbon emissions as fast as possible. That's what I believe. Wouldn't you want to spend every dollar you could making that happen? Or are you more interested in building projects slowly, but spreading more money around? I'm okay with with good paying jobs. And I think that there's been too much, way too much inequality in our economy in the past. If these jobs are uh, at decent rates for people who are then able to have a job that pays uh, a middle-class income, uh, that's fine with me. One of the most innovative parts of the proposal is is around um, expanding broadband access and also having more charging stations. But I'm going to agree with you on one other thing, Jim, that we should really be looking at how to fund these plans with some private-public partnerships and not relying solely on government funding. Uh, The administration should open the door to investors such as public pension funds and other sources of private savings and capital. We should also be looking at what other countries are doing, including European countries, on privatizing airports, seaports, and experimenting with, with toll roads as well. That would reduce the burden on taxpayers. I'm a little skeptical about the administration's plans to hike the corporate tax rate back up to 28 percent. That would actually make uh, the American corporate tax rate higher than in most of our competitive nations and may encourage uh, foreign takeovers of American companies. 
I agree with you that bumping up our corporate taxes too high risks really damaging the economy. You know, it's always tempting to think like, well, we have all these problems. Let's make those big, rich, bad corporations pay everything. But corporations aren't a single thing. It's either investors, it's workers, it's consumers. All of those people pay. When you say, let's have higher corporate taxes, those are the people who effectively pay the taxes. We're still paying those taxes. It's not just evil Exxon that's paying uh, when we tax them higher. One aspect, though, of, of what uh, Joe Biden is proposing, I really do support, and that's the increase in global minimum taxes and an, and a push by the administration to try and reduce tax havens where companies really do escape paying their fair share. There are some very large American companies that pay a tiny percentage of their overall taxes, including companies like Netflix and Amazon, and there should be reforms there, sensible reforms that mean that global corporations that are making good money uh, should be paying a reasonable share in taxes. Right. I would like to see our press examine these proposals in terms of their real impact and really do some serious analysis. And I'm worried that what we're going to see instead is Biden goes big and bold and bolder than FDR and, and how everybody feels about the plan how the messaging is shaped. And this is a real weakness in our media to take a narrative that is rarely, rarely oriented towards, okay, let's look at dollars and cents. Let's look at what the policy does on the ground and rather to discuss how people talk about the policy. I can't disagree with that, even though I'm trying really hard, Jim. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Uh, thanks for joining us on this episode. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. Uh, we make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Uh, check us out at DaviesContent.com. And again, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 